So Exodus chapter 7, and kicking right into it here, verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So just, you know, bit of review here, you'll remember that here's God calling Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh, and it's all about getting the people of of Israel, God's people, out of the land of Egypt and into the land that God would be bringing them. Now Moses has been most terrified, most fearful at this kind of commissioning and calling of and go to, he, he keeps coming up with excuses after excuses. And, and remember, uh, Moses just even recently in chapter six was still bringing up excuses. I can't speak, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips there in verse 30. But the Lord has been revealing to Moses that he's gonna do this work. Remember, if you weren't with us uh, a few weeks ago, chapter six, verse six, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Now this is a huge theme even within the whole of, of Exodus because this is what God is seeking to do, to declare exactly who he is, not just for his people Israel, but also for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This becomes an opportunity here for God to display exactly who he is, that he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that he is God, there's none like him. And so Moses, in all of his fear and worry and apprehension, just has to keep reminding himself, oh, wait a second, I just have to remember that he is the Lord. He's the one that takes care of all these things. He's the one that brings about his purposes and his will. And so we're looking here right now in chapter seven out really at the purposes of God and, and again reminding us of these things. So God calls Moses to come into Pharaoh. He says, I'm gonna make you as God. In other words, Moses is gonna be that representative of God before Pharaoh. God's gonna do some great things through Moses. He'll stand in that place of God before Pharaoh. What God says will be what Moses says. Moses, you see, didn't have to fear rejection or, you know, how Pharaoh would counteract or respond to Moses in any way because what Pharaoh is going to be doing will be done against God. And Moses is standing there as a representative of God. Moses doesn't have to take this personally. He just has to realize, no, this is how he's responding to God. And then Aaron, it says, would be functioning as Moses' prophet. A prophet spoke on behalf of the Lord. They communicated God's word to the people of God. And so as Moses stood in the place of God, Aaron would be speaking the words of, of Moses, who would be there representing God, and he'd be speaking those words to Pharaoh and the people. Now, we read something that I think can be very troubling for a lot of people here in verse three, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And we read that and we go, 
Lord, what are you, what does this mean? Why would you do this? Aren't you wanting to soften Pharaoh's heart and bring him to you and, and open up his heart to these things? God, why would you now harden his heart? And these are difficult, hard things to really kind of comprehend and grasp. So let's just hit verse four. Um, but Pharaoh, no, okay, we'll, we'll cover this a little bit here. Just like to move on, right? You know, but it, it seems like this is kind of counterproductive to what God would, would really want to do or even, even seeming harsh that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, here's what we need to take into account is that we read in some passages that God hardens Pharaoh's heart while in other passages, we read that Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And there's two different Hebrew words that are used in these situations. When it speaks of Pharaoh hardening his heart, the word used is kabad in, the, in, the, in Hebrew, and it implies a self-imposed honor or pride. This is what, what Pharaoh is doing. He's, he's hardening his kabad, he's hardening his heart saying, no, nobody is greater than me. I am the one that needs to receive all the honor. And he's doing this very pridefully, putting himself in the place of God ultimately. He's putting himself over and above anything that God is or does. And then when it speaks of then God hardening Pharaoh's heart, the word used is kashah, which means to make heavy or difficult. The idea here is that God is gonna make this a very heavy thing for Pharaoh, to let Pharaoh realize that it is a difficult, heavy thing when you place yourself in the place of God, when you try to be the one that's leading and governing your own life, it's going to be a very heavy thing for you. And yet, what God is doing is simply confirming then that position of Pharaoh's heart, which is that Pharaoh sees himself as the supreme sovereign, but God is going to multiply his signs, his wonders over all of Egypt, and especially to Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh will soon understand that God is the true ruler of all. In his commentary on this passage, John Curd explains, he says, ancient Egyptian texts teach that the heart is the essence of the person, the inner spiritual center of the self. Pharaoh's heart was particularly important because the Egyptians believed that it was the all controlling factor in both history and society. It was further held that the hearts of the gods, Ra and Horus, were sovereign over everything. Because Pharaoh then was the incarnation of those two gods, his heart was thought to be sovereign over creation. Therefore, by hardening Pharaoh's heart, God was making a theological point. He was proving that he alone is indeed sovereign over all things. Nothing is outside the purpose of his will, not even the heart of a king like Pharaoh. You see, there are, there are two ways that a person can come to know God. Hmm. You can come to know God by experiencing his grace and mercy in salvation as you yield yourself to him, or you may know him by experiencing his judgment and wrath. But the outcome is the same for all. Everyone will come to know who God is in every knee will indeed bow before him, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter two. Again, God's purposes 
is for his glory to illuminate the world. He will do that through a person's soft heart of surrender and acceptance of him, and he'll do it through a person's hard heart and rejection of him. But there's only one of those paths that bring life and joy and peace in and through Jesus Christ. You either surrender now and receive that life-giving salvation, or you continue to harden your heart. And eventually you'll come to know that he is God, but you'll come to know him through his judgment and wrath. This hardening of Pharaoh's heart is only confirming what Pharaoh has already determined. See, this is not God hardening his heart in rejection of Pharaoh. This is God hardening his heart because Pharaoh has rejected God. Understand that, okay? This is not God hardening Pharaoh's heart in rejection of Pharaoh. This is God confirming Pharaoh's hardened heart as he has rejected God. This is why the Bible repeats to us, Oftentimes in, in, in Psalm 95, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 3, verse 15, Hebrews 4, verse 7, a couple of these verses, says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Hebrews 3, 15, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the, rebe in, as in the rebellion. If we are those that are just products of God hardening or softening a heart, then there'd be no place for verses like this. But the, these verses reveal to us that God is extending the invitation and saying, don't harden your heart. If you choose to continue to harden your heart and harden your heart, then I will give you what you want and I'll confirm that position that you've already chosen in your own heart. But the option is yours. Do not harden your heart. So in reading this, this is not God being harsh and and unkind is simply God confirming what Pharaoh has already determined for himself. And again, all this is going to be done so that God's power and might can be put on, on full display. So that all can come to know and see that he indeed is God. And there's none like him. There's none that is greater than Yahweh. Look at verse 4 here with me. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And notice this, this is what I'm saying, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Pharaoh will harden his heart and it'll give God an opportunity to reveal who he is. Remember? Pharaoh asked that question in chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should uh, uh, let you know, the people go, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Who is the Lord? Pharaoh honestly asked that question. And this becomes an opportunity now for God to show Pharaoh who he is and, and ultimately to see Pharaoh come to receive him. But God sees that Pharaoh's heart is hard and stubborn and is not going to be opened up to those things. So the purpose in Pharaoh not heeding Moses' request and hardening his heart is just so that God can demonstrate and show clearly who he is. They may not know who he is now at the moment, but they sure will when he gets done with them. They will know very intimately and clearly that 
Yahweh indeed is God, and there's none like him. Pharaoh's stubborn rejection will only give God an opportunity to display in greater ways his power and his might. You know, we today can go through times of trial that I would say none of us enjoy. None of us are praying, Lord, I need some more trials this week. Let's bring it on. These are not things that we oftentimes enjoy, but we can understand that God is doing a work through it that we don't always realize. Because here's Israel, they're living in Egypt. It's a type of the world, remember that. Egypt is a type of the world. Yet there's going to be something about them that's going to stand out. God will be taking them through these times of plagues and pain so that his glory may be revealed. Ever wonder why we go through pains and problems? Have you realized that through those times, God is performing his will, that he may be seen and that people may see his, his, his power and his might on display as he delivers us through those difficulties? See, again, you've heard me say oftentimes, God doesn't exist for us. God is not there to make things better and comfortable for us. We exist to bring honor and praise to God. We exist to bring glory to God. And if God can do that in the midst of trials and tribulations that he works in us through them and delivers us through so that people can say, man, how did you manage to handle that? It was not me, it was the Lord. It gives opportunity to give praise and glory to God. In other words, when trials and difficulties come, we don't have to be crying out, Lord, you know, get me out of this, God. We can pray, what do you want me to get out of this? What do you want to demonstrate in me? What do you want to, what do, you want to do through this, Lord, so that you can be more greatly glorified in this? God's hand is in it all. And we can be instruments that either squeak and squawk through difficult days or instruments that sound out an incredible tune of praise that will bring much glory to God. So God's making that clear to Moses. And then in verse 6, then Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them. So they did. And Moses was 83 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now that's pretty awesome, isn't it? Isn't that great? You're never too old to be used by God. Isn't that great? God's not looking at Moses and Aaron saying, man, you guys are kind of past your prime here. Expiry date has been ended long ago. Like, he's not looking at them that way. He's like, I got work for you to do. You're never too old to be used to the Lord. God's just simply looking for our availability, our willingness to serve him. And, and here we see something so wonderful happen because do you notice anything different now with the Lord's command to go before Pharaoh? There's no excuses. There's no arguing. There's no like, Lord, wait a second. I don't think I'm the guy. I've been trying to tell you. I don't think I'm the guy. I, I can't speak well. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm, I'm going to blow it, Lord. You got to find something else. There's none of that anymore. This is a small victory we see because it just simply says, so they did. They went. Moses and Aaron did so. Just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. They went in just this complete obedience to the Lord. An immediate, an immediate loving obedience to God's word. It's that kind of response that keeps us walking in blessing 
and peace in the Lord. That's what God desires of us. It's just to simply follow in his word, in his commands, and walk in obedience. And God's going to take care of the rest. Moses has been struggling in that. And now we're seeing some small victories occurring here. And he's ready to go. Then, verse 8, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh, um, when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. So this is interesting. Show a miracle for yourselves, it says in verse 9. This would have been a very normal and appropriate request of Pharaoh to ask for a sign or a miracle because he wants to kind of see their kind of authority behind them. He wants to see that these men are somebody that he should really kind of listen to, basically. Jesus and the apostles all came with great signs which validated the word of truth that they were sharing, however. You know, we don't need to continue to seek after a sign any longer because we've already seen it all. We've seen Jesus rise from the grave who is alive today. We don't need to keep asking for signs and miracles. We've already seen it all. The word is complete and proven. Nothing needs to be authenticated or validated today when we have all that we need already. So Pharaoh's asking this. He wants to know, man, who's behind you guys in this? So Aaron told, cast down your rod. And he does so and it becomes a serpent. Now that is interesting what God is doing here. And, and what God's going to be doing with all these plagues, we're getting a few of those plagues here tonight. But what God is doing with these plagues, it's very interesting because this isn't just a battle against Pharaoh or against Egypt. This is a demonstration of God's power over all the false gods and so-called deities of Egypt. Ultimately, this is God waging war against Satan. This gets exciting here. Interestingly, Satan is oftentimes depicted as a serpent in Scripture, right? So a rod is cast down, it becomes a serpent. Now the Egyptians, these guys were fascinated with snakes. They feared them greatly, and sadly, <laughs> it actually led to their worship of them. Now, the word for serpent here is the Hebrew word tannin, which speaks of a, a poisonous serpent. Some have even translated it to mean like a, a sea monster, could be referencing a, a crocodile. Nevertheless, it, it seems most fitting that a serpent is in mind, and most likely a cobra. This is what the Pharaoh had on their ceremonial headdress, a fierce female cobra. This depicted the harshness and severity that Egypt would strike at their enemies. It instilled fear into their enemies as much as themselves uh, as they themselves had a fear of these serpents this is how uh, a relief at Karnak describes one of Shoshank's victories in battle it said this thy war mace it struck down thy foes thy serpent crest was mighty among them so that was something that the Egyptians really stood behind the the power of the cobra this great fear that would you know bring poison into their enemies and so there's a real fear of them what's sad however is that this fear that the egyptians had towards snakes was this fear that led them to worship them there's even a temple built to the snake goddess wajet represented by the cobra you know it's interesting that's often the way that satan works isn't it he leads through fear to bring a person to submission or control 
and looks to bring them into a place where in the end there's no profit or joy in it. They get trapped in this and they get so fearful to think that I can't escape this or get away from this. Might as well give in to it. It's the way that Satan oftentimes works and it's what's happening here with the Egyptians in this worship of serpents. Nevertheless, God is using this now to demonstrate his power. Let's see what happens. Verse 11, but Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So what Pharaoh does, he calls, he's, it's almost like Pharaoh's not phased at this, right? Like rod gets thrown down, serpents are like, okay guys, come on in, let's see what you can do. So the wise men, the sorcerers come in, these are the magicians of Egypt. We're not sure how many of them they are, perhaps Moses and Elijah, or sorry, Moses and, and Aaron are feeling quite outnumbered, right? Feeling a little bit maybe worried, but again, when you have God on your side, you're never outnumbered, right? Praise the Lord for that. And so these magicians, they carry out their enchantments. Their rods were thrown down and they became serpents. Well, how does that work? How'd they do that? It's not certain whether or not this was some kind of like illusion or some parlor trick that was being used here. Snakes had this nerve on the back of their head when, when it was pressed, it would put them into this state of paralysis. And it could be that these magicians came in with these snakes that looked like a rod, but when they threw them down, it just kind of woke up the snakes and they began to slither and then appear like they were turning into snakes. It's something that is still done today in parts of Egypt where people will kind of put these snakes into this enchantment or you know trance or this paralysis kind of a state. So it could be they did something like that. But it's not so easy to explain away these things in the natural when it comes to these magicians duplicating some of the other miracles. The reasonable conclusion here is that they're doing these things through the power of Satan. Yeah, Satan has power. He actually does. And he's not someone to play around with. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. Another world leader is gonna come onto the scene in a future day, and he's gonna himself operate in the power of Satan. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2, Verse 9 and 12, the coming of the lawless one. That's speaking of the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is, in according, is, in, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. So Satan, you see, is one that looks to imitate the miracles of God for the purpose of deceiving people. Satan will do that through the tribulation period. He's, and, and notice that he's only able to copy and counterfeit the things of God. Just like God marks his people in, in Revelation 7, those that are sealed, Satan will come along and also mark those that are his with a mark on the forehead or the right hand. Satan is always a counterfeiter. He's never an innovator. He only counterfeits the work of God. He can't create. God is a creating God. Satan is just a masquerading person trying to be 
like God. That's why we need to be people who don't follow after signs and wonders because they can be deceptive. Those things have come into the church in the name of God and has deceived people, led people away from the Lord because they've been caught up in things that were, that were not of God. It looks good. It looks like there's power there, but Satan has power. And Satan is able to, to counterfeit and, and bring lying signs and wonders. We need to be careful that everything we see and do lines up with the word of God. Our faith needs to be based upon the word of God, not in experiences and signs and wonders. It needs to be based upon the word of God. Now we have some insight into a couple of these magicians. I'm, I, I'm sure there was more, but two of these magicians is mentioned in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 8, 9 says, Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Notice that. Paul brings up this account to say, Oh, the folly of those that are seeking to come in with, you know, lies and resisting the truth, their folly is going to be evident just as those that stood and resisted Moses as their folly was also evident and seen. See, no matter what Satan tries to do, God is still greater. Isn't that awesome? Because what do we read there in, in, in verse, um, oh, verse 12? But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Isn't that great? They all throw theirs down, and then there's Aaron's rod, just like, great, got some food here. Starts to gobble them all up. I love to see what these magicians are all doing then. Ah, no, it's my bread and butter right there. What have you done? Freaking out. But it's just a small demonstration that, that God is still greater, no matter what forces Satan can kind of bring together, God is still greater. Just as 1 John 4 forces, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In fact, this provides a great picture of what God has in store for all of Egypt's army because as Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, so too it tells us in Exodus 15 that the Red Sea is about to swallow up all that army of Egypt. It's kind of little pictures as Aaron's rod swallows up their rods, so too, in Exodus 15, the song that is sung, it says that the army of Egypt was swallowed up in the Red Sea. And yet, seeing them obviously being outmatched here, Pharaoh still stubbornly refuses to yield to God because it says again that he hardens his heart. Verse 13, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. This isn't surprising God. God's already warned Moses, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. Don't freak out, don't worry. Don't think that you're doing something wrong. Because I've already told you, he's going he's to harden his heart, but it's going to give me an opportunity to display in greater ways my strength and my might. But even though Pharaoh is seeing these signs now, seeing something so wonderful like this, he's still hardening his heart. He's still refusing to submit to God. But again, just going to give God a greater opportunity. And it begins with the first plague. Look at verse 14. First plague, waters become blood. So the Lord said to Moses, 
Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to serpent, you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood, and the fish that are in the river shall die. The river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Now again, like I said, the plagues are all a direct attack upon the various deities that were worshipped in Egypt. The three deities were associated with the, with the Nile. You have Osiris, or Os, Osiris, Nu, and Happy, H-A-P-I. Interesting. Now, the Egyptians depicted the Nile as Happy, who's a, a fat man, bearded man with the breasts of a woman, who indicated the powers of fertility and nourishment. There was a hymn they would sing in the temple to this God, which went something like this. Thou waterest the fields which Ra created. Thou art the bringer of food, creator of all good things. Thou fillest the storehouses. Thou hast care for the poor and needy. So they saw the Nile as essential. It, it was uh, an absolute wonderful resource they had, but it was something they began to worship. And they began to have these different gods that were associated with the Nile. And it's possible that as, as Pharaoh goes out in the morning to the waters where Moses is told to meet him, that Pharaoh's going out to give worship to these gods of the Nile. That he's doing this in a religious duty. Now, in order to understand these plagues, this is what Boyce says. He says, in order to understand these plagues, we need to understand that they were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of God, of the God of Israel, to the Egyptian gods. There were about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered about the three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. It does not surprise us, therefore, that the plagues got sent against Egypt in this historical battle follow this three-force pattern. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile, the next four were against the land gods, and the final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. So again, these are all a direct hit against various gods that they would worship there in Egypt. Again, these plagues now also follow a similar pattern because they, they kind of go in sets of three, excluding the tenth one, which was, we'll kind of set aside as, as unique and different. But uh, the first plague, Moses goes out to meet Pharaoh at the Nile. The second one, it seems that he goes into the palace to talk to Pharaoh. The third plague is unannounced. It's given without warning. And the next three plagues follow that same order. Moses goes and meets Pharaoh at the, at the river. He goes in the palace to talk to Pharaoh. And then that next plague is given without warning. And so those sets of threes that we see given in Egypt. But Nevertheless, here's the waters being turned to blood. The Nile, like I said, was definitely the lifeblood of Egypt. It was a major natural resource for them. It was used for transportation, for irrigation, drinking, food, etc. It would be similar to having today the oil supply cut off, the stock market crashing, drinking water being contaminated, bare shelves in grocery 
stores. And as I say all those things, I'm starting to realize that's kind of like we're living the plagues, I think, right now. This is coming upon us. What's the matter with you guys? Okay. But it'd just be chaos to see that. I mean, we see toilet paper shortage, the, the chaos that ensues, right? Just with that. It's like when these things begin to get hit, these, these things that you're so relying on, it just creates chaos. And so God is going to hit them in a way here to really bring about or get their attention. It says in verse 19, then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Verse 21, the fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Man, this river that the people had become so dependent on was suddenly in a moment rendered useless to them. Everything in it died. They couldn't drink the water and soon everything began to smell fishy. Not a, not a pleasant place to be for them. This is not comfortable. This is where an obstinate heart towards God gets you. People think that you know living life their way is what's really going to bring happiness and joy and peace that they're looking for. But sin only leads to futility and an unbearable funk in your life. And that's what is really being demonstrated here. Just the result of a heart that's hardened towards God, turned away from God, wanting to go their own way. And where does it get you? It doesn't get you very far. The very things that you might be relying on Maybe you're looking to the resources of this world that you think are going to bring some sort of satisfaction. Apart from God, those things can be rendered useless in a moment. Be sure that your confidence, your hope, your trust is in the Lord and in the Lord alone. That He is your dependency because He is faithful. It says in verse 22 that the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Now, these magicians, they have a real opportunity to shine here, don't they? This is their moment to say, hey, let me demonstrate our power. We're going to make the waters clean again. But they don't do that. They're not able to do that. What do they do? They only make things worse. Again, they're only able to mimic what God has done. There's no innovation. There's no upgrade here that the enemy can bring. There's nothing that the enemy can turn around to make better. He just adds to the pain and the difficulty. So they go and find water. Now you go, where did they find water? Well, perhaps that's why verse 24 is given us because as they dug around the river and perhaps hit down to the natural springs of water, they're able to get fresh water. But as they get fresh water, they go, let me show you what we can do. We're gonna make this blood too. You know, they go, no, don't do that. I need that. Ah. 
you just took that water away from me. Thanks. They're not making anything better. They'll do the same with their frogs that will be seen next. They only add to the misery and the pain. That's, that's what Satan does. Satan cannot make anything in your life better. Oh, he'll, he'll promise you the world. He'll promise you great things, but he can never deliver. And you'll find that it only adds to more misery and pain. It's not a part of Satan's program to do a work of good, only work of destruction. It's just not in them. Yet people blindly follow after the counterfeit, and they believe the lie. Pharaoh's falling into this category here because he's turning away now. He doesn't heed them. He's, he's going back now without surrendering to the Lord. He turned and went in his house. Neither was his heart moved by all these things. He's not looking at this going, wow, God, you just turned our, our entire system of resource of, of water, you turned it to blood. His heart isn't even moved by that. He just walks away and continues to go his way. You could say that Pharaoh is still in denial. Okay, we'll move on. Second plague. Chapter 8 here, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. Oh, yeah. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams or the rivers and over the ponds and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and they covered the land of Egypt. Verse seven, and the magicians did so with their enchantments and they brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. You dummies. Now, there's a lot of real estate in Egypt. It's a big land. And it says that there were frogs that covered the land of Egypt. Brought up frogs in the land of Egypt. It's amazing what's happening here. So the second plague is, is an attack on the Egyptian goddess Het. She was depicted with the head of a frog and was said to aid women in childbirth. Frogs were sacred in Egypt. And if you killed one, you'd be punishable by death. Think about this. So now, they've got the land covered with gods that they can't kill. It's sacred. And they're going into their cooking utensils, into their ovens, into their beds. Like, it's everywhere. It's on, they're on them. I mean, you're driving a chariot along the road. You're just going, squishing over frogs. You probably are getting stuck. You'll have to get towed. And 
<laughs> but they're everywhere. And, and so it's as though God is saying here, you want to worship frogs? I'll, I'll give you frogs. I'll give you frogs to last you 10 lifetimes here. And they're just everywhere and, and they can do nothing. They can't swat, they can't kill them, they can't crush them because this would be, in their eyes, a, a sin against their gods, punishable by death. And then once again, these magicians could really set themselves apart from Moses and Aaron and really make this an opportunity to say, oh, why would we worship your God when look at what we can do? Your God brings frogs, we're going to move them all away. But no, they come up and they go, uh, well, we can bring frogs too. Let me do that. And they just make matters worse. They add to the problem. All of Satan's solutions only add to your problems. If he says, hey, this will make you happy, you can bet it's not. And how many people have fallen prey to the lie of the enemy where he presents something, he says, listen, this is what's really going to satisfy. This is what's really going to help you. This is what's really going to make you happy. Oh, I can change things for you. But understand, Satan is unable to make anything better. His whole purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. He can only make things worse. And it's evident here in what these magicians are doing. So, verse 8, it says there that Pharaoh then called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he said, Tomorrow. And he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. <laughs> But when, Pharaoh, I don't know if they've recovered from the dying fish in the Nile when it stung then. Is this just a, 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 an amalgamation of stank that's happening in the land? I don't know. But now they got frog stank happening here. But verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. It's interesting that in verse 9, Moses comes and asks Pharaoh, when would you like me to pray for you? You'd think Pharaoh would say, uh, how about right now? No time of the present. Let's get this dealt with right now. But he doesn't do that. He says, uh, how about tomorrow? One more night with the frogs. Such is the grip that sin can have in a life where it can get a hold on you. Though it stinks and it's a pain, it can begin to get such a, a foothold and a trap on you where it's hard to let it go. How many people have you seen crying out, help me, but yet are unwilling to let it go because sin has a way of getting a hold on you. And Pharaoh sitting here has the opportunity, Moses 
intercede now. We want these gone. But instead he says, how about tomorrow? How about one more night? And one more night becomes another night, becomes a week, becomes a month. Unless we're willing to do business with sin and say, I need this cut off now. I need to do whatever it takes for me to cut this away from me. I don't want to let it linger. I don't want to let it brew any longer. I don't want to let it fester. I don't want to get another inch of my life. I need to cut it off. So if I don't do business with it, it will get that hold on me. It becomes oh so hard to let go of. Well, after Moses intercedes for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, it says the frogs died. And they had to pile them all up together and again the land stank. I mean, could you imagine the smell of thousands and thousands of rotting frog carcasses? Just dwell on that for a moment, will you? <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine. I once lived in a place where we had, there was a scratching noise coming from above our, our oven and we realized there's like, there's something, there's a rodent. We had a landlord, so I told the landlord, and so he went and set up some poison. Well, I guess this rodent took the poison, but ended up dying in the wall that we couldn't get to. And let me tell you, just one small little carcass created months of agony and pain of stench coming from inside the walls. I couldn't imagine what a number of carcasses of dead frogs were doing here. You know, sin is like that, isn't it? The, the repercussions, again, of it can be far-reaching. Yeah, we understand when we give things over to the Lord, we're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're grateful for that. But the aftermath of sin can leave a stench for a long period after. Don't be condemned by it, but let it be a warning in your life of the damage that sin brings. And it's doing that here. And then... Again, sadly, verse 15, that when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So here's Pharaoh now, being interceded, he's just, yeah, get these away, please. He sees them now all die because Moses is calling out to the one true God, Yahweh. And yet, now that Mo, Pharaoh simply sees, oh, it's over, it's better, great, okay, I'll go back to living my life. Not going to yield, not going to surrender. Pharaoh wanted to be free from the consequences of sin, but not free from the sin itself. Because as soon as the problem is gone, he goes his own way again. Many people have come to God in desperation, hoping that he can fix their problems. Oh man, I've got this issue. Lord, I need you to take care of it. But we need to see why the problems are there and ask God to deal with that. Don't take away the result of the problem or take away the very problem typically sin is right at the root of that problem god isn't interested in a temporary commitment to him he wants us to come with a saving faith and a heart ready to surrender to him fully that's when we begin to see that that freedom of you know sin being taken away if we're just looking for a temporary relief well then we just go back to doing what we were doing that brought us to that point to begin with Pharaoh's not getting that he's not seeing that and he's going to continue to be 
just rolling in that circle of trouble and pain here. Third plague comes, verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. Hallelujah. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. So this plague, like I said, the third plague, the sixth plague, the ninth plague, that pattern, these ones all come without warning. Pharaoh's not told what's going to come. There's no warning now. It just hits them. The dust becomes lice. This would have been an attack to their god, Geb, which was the, the earth god. And again, this would have been completely humiliating for the Egyptians as they would have been covered in lice now, particularly very unnerving for the religious leaders, the, the, the priests that were in Egypt who, in worship of their various gods, would have to go through the ceremonially you know, cleansing. They would bathe themselves uh, often, daily shaving their heads. And now they're going to be covered in lice. They're going to be ceremonially unclean. Their livestock are going to be hit with lice to where now they are unfit for sacrifice. Their whole worship system that they, that they do in honor of these false gods, Yahweh is revealing that these gods are actually going to keep you now from your worship. It's a completely ridiculous thing that they are involving themselves in. But again, these lights are rendering all worshipers impure and unable now to worship their false gods. Now, like we read there, this time when the magicians came along, he said, okay, you got lice? You want more lice? Here we go. We're here for you. But now they can't do it. They're unable to do it. And what do they proclaim? They recognize this is the very finger of God. These magicians don't yet fully know who Yahweh is, but they're realizing he's more powerful than our gods. This, this God is greater. This is by the finger of God. We can't reproduce this. We can't counterfeit this. It's almost like they're conceding there's more strength in the finger of God than in all the body of our made-up gods combined. We see other expressions like this in scripture, seeing the, the hand of God at work or the outstretched arm of the Lord. It's just simply uh, a, a way of, of revealing just that might and power of God. And here we see Satan is limited in his power. Yes, Satan is a formidable foe. Yes, there is power, but it is limited power. And Satan is unable to do anything that God does not permit him to do. God is still sovereign over all. God is still greater. Even with the magicians tapping out now and revealing, <laughs> man, this is beyond anything we've seen. This is the finger of God. We see that Pharaoh is still not surrendering. Stubbornly, he continues to harden his heart. Pharaoh has seen enough to know that Yahweh is indeed the Lord of Lords, that there's none greater. Yet his heart grew hard. You know, people will often say, if I can just see a miracle of God, I'll be ready to submit. 
If I can just see God do something and see the evidence of God, then I will submit. No. Pharaoh is seeing time and time again, opportunity after opportunity, the very power of God that's greater than any God that they've been worshiping. And yet Pharaoh still will not surrender or submit. It takes yielding your will to his, placing your faith in him, not looking for signs, but simply coming in faith to who he is and being willing to surrender your heart to him. Well, last plague here that we're going to look at tonight flies. We'll, we will fly through this, trust me. Okay, and verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. As he comes out to the water, they say, then say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. In order that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the land, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be, and the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. So God sends a, a swarm of flies as this fourth plague. We're not sure exactly what insect this was, but I'm sure it doesn't matter. It's anything flying around and swarming you is not very pleasant. We're not really worried about, well, what is that? We're just like, get away from me. And now, it's not just one or two. There's like a swarm of them. Interestingly, the word for swarm also speaks of mixture. Someone said this was a mixture, perhaps, of different insects. It could have encompassed beetles, spiders, the dog fly, kind of like our horse fly, uh, mosquitoes, ticks, digging in your skin, or scares, which were sacred to Ra, the sun god. Gold scarabs have been found in some tombs. They were a symbol of eternal life. They were things that were, again, worshipped in Egypt. So it could be that this was a, a combination of various flies, insects, things that were just a nuisance to you. Some say this plague was directed at their god of resurrection, Kephir, who was depicted as a beetle. And it's here with this fourth plague that God now begins to make a difference between his people and the people of Egypt. Because the flies would miraculously stop right at the border of Goshen where the Israelites were, were dwelling and there were no flies there in Goshen. Nothing that was bothering the Israelite people there. You know, we see the same protection that God gives to his people in the tribulation. Sometimes we'll go through troubles as the Israelites did here. It's a, a result of sin. The curse has plagued us. We're in a fallen world. Yet, when we are set apart for God, we get to see that there will be added protection and peace as evidenced here. God is good. Well, verse 25, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, 
I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away, intercede for me. So Pharaoh gives the green light to go, yet the command was a compromising one. What does he say? Oh, you may go, but stay in the land. Don't go outside the land in the wilderness as God's commanding you. You may go and you may worship, but stay in the land. Satan would say the same to people today. Oh, you can go and worship your God, but you don't need to leave the things of the world. Remember, Egypt is a picture of the world. You can still have your cake and eat it too. He would say, you don't have to be separate from this world. That's what Satan would love for people to grab a hold of and to think, oh, you can go ahead and with one foot, you know, kind of serve the Lord, but with one foot still have your place in the world and follow along with the program there. That's kind of what Satan is doing and saying here. And yet for the Christian, there should be a distinction made. We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Our calling is to walk in obedience to God fully. God had called the Israelites to go three days journey into the wilderness. Anything short of that would be disobedience, wouldn't it? And yet, it's amazing how easily people can compromise in their walk with God and allow themselves to be engaged in the things of this world that God says were to come out from and be separate from. And it's a compromising walk. Well, oftentimes, it gets you into trouble. It's a compromising walk that will be very unfulfilling because it's coming up short of the fullness of what God has for you. And so Pharaoh is trying to tempt them into that kind of a walk, that kind of a service, that kind of a, a worship to God. And Moses says here in verse 29, Indeed, I'm going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, or from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. Hey, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? And you know how tough that is to kill flies, right? It's like, as soon as you get a few, you're like, where do these next ones come from? Not one remained. That's a miracle right there. Every single one was taken care of. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Now, if I'm God, I'm, I'm probably <laughs> losing patience with Pharaoh at this point, right? Come on, I'm sure you all are too at this point. This would be the last straw for me. He's not a man of his word. He keeps breaking his end of the deal. And yet, God is gracious and merciful. He keeps giving opportunity here for Pharaoh to kind of turn his heart to the Lord. We're only on plague four. God's still merciful, still giving Pharaoh an opportunity. But God cannot be mocked. He will make a distinction between those who are his and those who aren't. Pharaoh is setting himself up for a world of hurt, continuing on in this path. Many lessons for us to see and learn and I pray grow from as we go through this. We'll pick it up in chapter nine. Next time, worship team, come on up and let's uh, close with some worship. Lord, we... 
just come before you here today and we, we bow our hearts before you, God. We thank you that you are Yahweh, the great I am. There's none like you, Lord. You are great. You are mighty. And we proclaim your wonder and the awe of our God here tonight. Lord, I pray that we would be those that walk humbly before you, follow you in full obedience in everything, God. And as we do, Lord, that we would just experience the fullness of God in our lives. Lord, let us not let compromise sneak in. Let us not let sin get a foothold. We understand and see very plainly tonight, Lord, that, that sin just leads to rottenness. There's no good that comes from it. And oftentimes it drags on long after. Lord, I pray that we would cut away anything that's not of you. God, that you'd help us to see those things that, that are holding us still back as, as slaves in this world. Help us to see those things that are holding us back and let us cut them off. Let's allow you to do that work, Lord, that we might walk in that freedom that you have for us. We give you our lives here tonight. We want to walk in surrender and obedience to the praise of God because you deserve it all, Lord. You're a good God, a loving God. Thank you that you saved us. Thank you that you've made a way. So may we walk in that freedom and life that you have for us. We ask in your name. Amen.